You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, before we get going, I want to tell you about a podcast that just launched its second season. It's Dialogues from David's Werner Gallery. They put together artists in conversation with people of their choosing. It's all hosted by Lucas Zwerner. The uh, first episode of the second season has the artist Jordan Wolfson in conversation with the playwright Jeremy O'Harris, who has Slave Play on Broadway right now. It's a fascinating conversation. I really recommend it. Uh, you can find it wherever you're listening to this podcast by searching for Dialogues from David Zwerner. Thanks. Here is this week's show. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey. Hey, you guys. Uh, Evan, I'm excited for this episode. You just completed the interview and I, I asked Evan how it went. I got the, the rare Ratliff double thumbs up. Wow. <laughs> you don't see that very often. In any aspect of Evan's life, do you get the double thumbs up? But this interview got the, uh, the double thumbs up. Well, we were all just in Romania together, the uh, Power of Storytelling conference. And uh, I didn't see any double thumbs up from Evan, but it gets it, it gets a double thumbs up from me. I I, I give uh, the Power of Storytelling conference a double thumbs up. Double thumbs up. We had a great time. It was very fun. I had a fantastic time. There is a part of me that is not sure it was real. The whole thing feels like kind of like a fever dream. It uh yeah a a bunch of people have asked me to explain it. It's a uh, English language conference in Bucharest. Uh, it does uh it, it does seem strange that it exists, but it's uh, excellent. Uh, everyone should check it out. And also, you know, if you got a conference out there that wants to fly us there, we're available. We're available. Uh, <laughs> podcast at Longform. Thank you, Christian from Door, the magazine and uh, organization in Romania, for bringing us there. Very much so. Evan, who's on the show this week? Uh, this week, two thumbs up uh, is for Carvel Wallace, who uh, I just love his work. He's he's regularly in the New York Times Magazine, um, but he's also written for all sorts of places. He's on a number of podcasts. He was one of the three co-hosts of the um, this parenting podcast called Mom and Dad Are Fighting that was on Slate. Um, he's given a lot of parenting advice. Uh, he also had this podcast called Closer Than They Appear, uh, which I really, really like, and we talk about a bit. So I think people should go listen to that. It's really, really good. It's from 2017, I think, maybe late 2016 or early 2017. Um, so he's a writer. He's a podcaster. He's also co-written a book with Andre Iguodala from 
the Golden, previously of the Golden State Warriors. You have my attention. <laughs> he's done. He's done a lot. And you should you talk about that? We did talk about that because those that that's two of my interests: the Golden State Warriors and ghostwriting. I guess it's not ghostwriting; it's co-writing in this situation. But uh, always an interesting to talk about. We talked about that, and I sort of. I just guessed from his writing that he would be very thoughtful about how he approaches it, and he far exceeded my expectations of how thoughtful he was about how he approaches it. Rare Radliff, double thumbs up. I can't wait. If you're doing all kinds of different things, podcasting, writing articles, uh, all sorts of stuff, you need a, you need an uh, email newsletter. Uh, there's no better place to host it than with MailChimp. They've got all the tools, including e-commerce tools, so when you, when you start selling stuff. Uh, thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring the show. Now here's Evan with Carvel Wallace. Carvel, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm very excited to talk to you. Mm. What what brings you to New York? Uh, just a few things. Like I came to visit some people. I'm interviewing James McBride tomorrow for a piece I'm working on for the Times. Uh-huh. Uh, that's one of the main factors. But then also just seeing friends. How how is your work life split up right now? Well, I don't know that it is, and that's <laughs> kind of the issue. Like I just sort of I don't have a system. It's really kind of chaotic. But that's the way that I'm used to it. I'm working on two books right now. And one of them is like a ghostwriting, co-writing situation that is kind of like, it's a little bit of a celebrity thing. And so the- Can you, I feel like I know who it is, but are you allowed to talk who it is? It's Meek Mill. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I assume that's, well, we already signed the deal. I, so. I found it online. So- Okay. Well, then there you go. So it's, yeah. Anyway. So, um, so the turnaround for that one is relatively quick as projects like that tend to go. And then I, I signed a deal to do my own memoir that I'll be working on all of next year. Um. I have a kind of regular thing going with the Times Magazine, the New York Times Magazine, and sometimes I don't do a lot for a long time, and then sometimes I'll just, and this time I ended up just having two pieces at once because just I pitched something that they liked, and then at the same time, someone came to me and asked me to do something that they also liked, so Mm -hmm. then we ended up kind of doubling up on that. And then what else? There's a podcast um, that I'm working on right now with Transmitter Media called Finding Fred, that's like uh, 10 episodes where we kind of delve into the moral and spiritual philosophical stuff that underlies Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers' work. Uh-huh. Um, and does that stuff apply, like in a realistic, honest way, does it apply to today? And so we talked to theologians. We talked to like a bunch of people that knew him, that worked with him. We talked to his pastor. We kind of like, uh, and then we do these long form interviews with people that just had individual experiences with him that were never on television or whatever. Um it's largely an interview show, but there I do do some writing for it. It's really fascinating. What he did was really philosophically wild, and I think people don't fully understand it mm-hmm. yet. And I don't know that we fully understand it, so that's what we're trying to dig into. I know it's coming out this week. Are all 10 episodes in the can? Or you no. Do it, you, <laughs> if <laughs> only. No, no. <laughs> I was going to ask that. you that, assuming that they were, and it, you were going to say, no. oh, yeah, 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 we finished that I could have said ago. that to make us look good, but no. Um, no, episode one is like in the can. <laughs> What's coming out? Episode two is mostly done. I mean, we, we kind of like build the train as we go, but... Um, the, like the whole script development process is kind of like it's a little bit of an assembly line. It's like we we did a bunch of interviews all through the summer. I mean, we got I reached for the first time in my life true interview fatigue, which is not a thing I get a lot. But we talked to so many people at such great length about everything having to do with his work. 
and it was beautiful. And then the team at Transmitter like just waded through all that tape. And then we started getting together dummy scripts and kind of like shaving and organizing and going back and forth and recording take after take to see what we thought as a team. So it's a longer process, but episode one took way longer because it was like, we're trying to get so much done in a pilot episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is great because I feel like part of uh, my way into knowing about your work Mm you're like truly multi-platform person mm. um, from a like media consumer perspective. But also I feel like if you'd asked me in, I don't know, 2013, mm-hmm. do you know who Carvo Wallace is? I, I would say like, no, I don't know mm-hmm. who that is. Tell me who that is. Mm-hmm. And then like two years later or three years later, at some point it was, you were everywhere. Mm. And I know you sort of had a whole life before that. Yeah. Um, so I kind of wanted to, to start back, way, way back. Yeah. You've written about your childhood. You've talked about your childhood. Yeah. Um, I've listened to all of um, Closer Than They Appear, mm. which my wife is a huge fan of that podcast oh. when it came out. Tremendous fan. She was always talking to me about it. Mm. Um, so tell me a little bit about you as a kid. Tell us a little bit about your, your upbringing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it was a little chaotic, and that, a lot of that had to do with the fact that my mother was really young when she had me, mm. and... She, you know, like, I don't know that she was in, like, a super great position to, like, be a parent. And that translated into just, like, certain amounts of instability when I was growing up. Um, And so I moved around a lot with her. And then oftentimes I wasn't with her. I was with other families and various things would happen there. So it was like a a whole lot of things were going on. And for me, like, as long as I can remember, I've always felt like someone that was really interested in stories and words and music and like art and television and just like anything that had to do with like talking about feelings, feeling about feelings. It just was like, that's where I went. And I remember being a kid and had gone to live with my aunt and she was kind of um, something of a bookworm. And so she was like really excited to buy me books. And, you know, you'd have like your your mystery books and then you'd have like your Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe stuff and then you'd have your books that were just about some kid would just have like his parents would get divorced and then he would like feel a certain way then he would start third grade then he would feel differently and then third grade would end and then he would whatever learn how to catch a baseball and like those were the books that I was always really into like nothing ever happened except people just had feelings and I I just liked books like that I was a big Judy Bloom fan Mm. I read Are You There God It's Me Margaret like over and over and over again I also did a Thing where I was like, and this shows up sometimes in the way that I work now, I had a little bit of an obsessive compulsive thing where once I found a piece of media that I liked, I would just engage with it consistently. What were some other ones? Uh, Are You There, God's Me, Margaret was probably the biggest one. The movie Purple Rain, I just watched like a hundred times in a row. The Weirdly, the novelization of the movie The Karate Kid. Like they like post movie, like, they like did yeah, one of those things of... where they like made a book out of the movie and they had like the pictures from the movie like in the book. I just, for whatever reason, was like fixated on that. It was the same plot. They followed same the same plot. plot no, it was li- literally, they just made, <laughs> they just novelized the script, and like it wasn't all good stuff. Like, and I, and I, what else? And definitely music. Like, I just was so obsessed with music from such an early age, and so those things all just made me. I don't know. They just gave me something to grasp onto. I think in in a situation in which there were other kinds of chaos. So, like, I think that that all those times I would get really fixated on weird stuff. You know, I remember 
Actually, the first piece I wrote for The New Yorker was about Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. And when I wrote that piece, I got this email from this college girlfriend who was like, wow, it's so funny that like you are writing about Michael Jackson because like when we were in college, you would not shut up about Michael Jackson. Like it was like all you talked about. And she was like, it's so good to see that like now you're getting paid to do that. And it was like the first time it dawned on me that like all of my childhood obsessions things that people even at the time told me like, no, this is not productive, go do something useful, that this is now the thing that I has turned into what I'm getting paid for. And at the time when you were a kid, were they just escapes or was there any, did you put yourself in the role of someone who would create those things? That's a great question. I don't know that I started thinking of myself as a creator of stuff until when I was in ninth grade, I moved to LA to live with my mom who had since moved out there. I was born in the East Coast, raised between Pennsylvania and DC. Then in ninth grade, I went out to LA to live with my mom. And at that point I got involved in theater because that, I mean, really just randomly, like I, cause I was leaving a small town to go live in LA and in eighth grade and no one did that. So people would be like, why are you going to LA? And I just literally just made it up. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be an actor. Cause that just sounded like <laughs> applause. I was like, that's a good reason. That's what they would Like, how do you explain what's really happening? It's just too weird. And so then, then that just became this thing that I started saying and then I got interested in it. And so I started doing theater and, and then I got into an arts high school, like with a focus on theater. And at that point, that's when I started thinking about I don't know that I started thinking about making stuff, but I started thinking about having a career as an artist. The idea of like, oh, like that you get a piece of text and you get to interpret that text and understand it and bring something to it and help tell a story based on this skill that you're developing. I was really into that. Um, Around that time, I also got like first discovered Shakespeare, like learned about Shakespeare, like starting around ninth grade and then all through college, high school and college, that's what I was just most fixated on. And I think just studying Shakespeare textually, like as a work of text, I just learned a lot about writing through that. That's probably like my main way of learning about writing because the way that that text operated, the words that were used, the rhythm, the cadence of it, the use of vowels and consonants, all this stuff is so specific. And and the more you study it, the more you like see these things. And it's just like, I don't know, it's something kind of magical about it. And then I went to when I went to college, I came to NYU t- mm. to go to school, and the program I was in was very much a make your own theater kind of program. And so I think that's when I started like taking the reins as a creative and being told like, no, you get to just make something, just like go make a thing that you envision. And so going through that process over and over again, like over four years, just like making pieces from scratch, everything from like three minute pieces to like forty five minute pieces, that just kind of gave me this feeling like, oh, I. I know how to take something from a thought to a feeling, to an idea, to a vision, to a practice, to a finished product. And so did you think about pursuing filmmaking or was your plan to pursue filmmaking? I don't really know what my plan was. I mean, I I don't fully understand what happened, actually. I've thought about this a lot. Like at the end of college... I was working as an actor that was doing a lot of theater in New York. I was getting offered parts without having to audition. Like I was like, oh, I could totally do this. And then some weird thing happened where I just was like, never mind. I don't want to do it. Like, I, I don't know what that was. I was like 22 or maybe 24. And I, I think maybe I had been doing theater professionally since I was like 15. And I think maybe I just needed, it's just like an internal, sometimes you get an internal drive to move away from something and you don't even know why you just know that there's something. And so I just left and I felt like maybe at the time, like theater was, 
it felt super insular, like it didn't address the world and engage with the world and the reality of like living in this time in a way that I that felt satisfying to me. So maybe that was it. I don't know. So anyway, I just decided that I wasn't going to do it anymore. I was playing at that point. I had been playing music a lot. And so I thought maybe I'll just like do the music thing, but I don't know. And then I got a job, but my job to pay the rent was I was working in a nonprofit, like a youth nonprofit. Yeah. And that was the work that I ended up doing for like 15 years in various forms, like kids that are either coming out of incarceration, kids that are in long-term lockup, um, kids that are in foster care. I did like a gardening program and like the housing projects, like every version of direct service with kids you could do. I did some version of. And so that was like, it paid the bills. I was good enough at it. It was fine. Uh, there was a feeling of, oh, I guess I could move up these ranks and maybe just sort of be like this nonprofit guy or something like maybe, you know, I don't know. But I could never fully commit to that. But I also really did like the kids and the interactions with the kids. And I think that's probably where I learned to do interviews Hmm. because I had several jobs where my job was to like kids would walk in and I would do like the intake conversations with them. And just the whole process of like sitting down with someone who's been engaged with the system for three, four, five years, whatever. They there's so much bullshit they've had to survive to manage. And then you're going to sit down and you're like, okay, I'm this service provider. How do you then engage with that person? What do you say to them? How do you listen to them? How do you reflect back to them what you see? How do you lay out expectations? How do you establish trust? This is all stuff that I did for a lot of years with people. And so I think that some of the methods I learned just kind of like on the fly and then some stuff that I just like learned at trainings. Mm -hmm. I think all of that really helped when it came time for me to start interviewing like celebrities and whoever for pieces. And in that time period, so it's a long time period, but when you're doing that nonprofit work, are you thinking to yourself, why did I leave the theater behind? Did you leave it behind and never look back? Or did you think... I had a whole creative life and now I don't? That second thing, yes. The first thing, no. I Hmm. did think I had a whole creative life and now I don't. I did think what happened there. And like part of what happened is that like I'm I'm married, I had, you know, like life just kind of unfolded in ways. Like the way life is, is like it's a little bit your decision making and a little bit like just things that just come flying down the river at you and you just (laughs) hold on for dear life. And so, but I did look up at a certain point in my early 30s and go like, whoa hold on now I feel like I've made a lot of decisions I've sort of agreed to a lot of things up until now and yet the part of me that feels like the most essential me that I remember from high school or from college that is like this maker of things where is that guy now like I I have no access to him now and that that kind of bumped me out Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put Evan and Carvel on hold for just a second. I want to tell you about the sponsors that are making today's show possible. And the first one is going to uh, require you guys to get a little uh, little personal, a little hygienic. And that's because our first sponsor is Native. Native creates safe, simple, effective products that people use every day. I am one of those people. Their products are filled with trusted ingredients and their natural deodorant, which is what we are here to talk about, is no different. Native deodorant has no aluminum, no parabens. It's real stuff. Coconut oil, shea butter, tapioca starch. They've got all kinds of enticing scents. Coconut and vanilla, lavender and rose, cucumber and mint, eucalyptus and mint. They uh, sound like cocktails, but they are in fact deodorant. And for those with sensitivities, Native has an unscented formula. 
baking soda free formula too there are uh, so many options with native and they're all going to make you smell great sweat less and you're not putting all kinds of uh junk up in your underarms i like the uh coconut and vanilla flavor it uh what can i say it smells delightful and i'm not the only one there are over 8000 five star reviews and there's no risk to try it so you might as well do it native offers free shipping free returns and free exchanges in the united states of america go get yourself some natural deodorant you're going to smell good you're going to sweat less for 20% off your first purchase visit nativedeodorant.com and use the promo code longform during checkout that's nativedeodorant.com promo code long form for 20% off your first purchase and get the uh, coconut and vanilla. Smells great. Also sponsoring the show this week, a new podcast from the Parcast Network. It's diabolical, you guys. It comes out on Fridays. The show is called Villains. From pop culture psychos to real world criminals, the show journeys deep into the complex origins, motives, impacts of history's most dastardly bad guys. The Joker, Norman Bates, Darth Vader, Voldemort. I think that's how you say that. I didn't really read Harry Potter. Anyway, there are uh, every episode is a deep dive into the psychological, political, emotional factors that spawn uh, both real and fictional villains. As seen in the silver screen, ripped from headlines, true crime, uh, all kinds of very, very bad people. And I am interested generally in uh, why we're all so obsessed with understanding very bad people. And this show will also get into that. It's a new series, Villains. You can listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can go to uh, parcast.com slash villains to listen right now. But don't listen uh, right now because right now we're going to get back to Evan and Carvel Wallace. And the other thing from this earlier period that I wanted to touch on before we mm. move forward is you had written at one point, I thought I would be dead by age 25. Mm-hmm. And I don't know at mm. what point of your life mm. you thought that. I probably thought that through high school. Mm. And you know what? Here's a story that I can tell you that I remember one time I was in high school. I went to high school in LA and I was driving around with a friend of mine and we pulled up at this intersection and this homeless dude came and started like washing our window. And she was kind of like, no, 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 like kind of waved him off. And then she said, that's going to be you one day. Like kind of joking, sort of teasing me. And like, I kind of laughed, but I actually felt like the possibility that that could happen to me or that I could end up dead in some way from a stray bullet or just some of the other shit that happens to black men or that I could end up in prison somehow. Those things felt like, We'll see. Like, it didn't seem like, well, here's what I'm going to do to make sure this doesn't happen. That wasn't the vibe that I felt when I was like 18. I felt like I'll do my stuff, but we'll see what happens. Because it felt like I was against forces that were much greater than my own personal will could handle. And so I think, I mean, maybe the question underneath that is like, how did that impact the way I looked at life. Yeah. Because that did change once I sort of realized, oh, maybe that's, maybe I'm not going to be dead. Um, I mean, I was like pretty self-destructive throughout my 20s and 30s. Not like in some dramatic way, but just kind of in a general, like, I don't really see what the point is of not 
destroying myself. Like, I don't want it to hurt, but I'm I'm not really trying to like bank or preserve anything. Mm-hmm. I'm not putting health or myself in the bank for to to be withdrawn later. And so, I mean, really, that's just I was like depressed. I mean, I just was like a depressed person. I think probably is like a lot of what it was about. And the only thing that made that hard was that I had other people in my life who cared about me. I would imagine, when you have kids, I imagine it. Yeah, could. definitely when I had kids, that changed a lot. I mean, my son was born, I was 28. And my daughter, I was 30. And so, but their mom too, also. Like, once having a person in my life who, it took me a few little whiles to recognize this person actually does care and isn't, you know, like, but I think I just felt like, it was sort of a mismatch. I had these other people that seemed to care what happened to me, but I didn't super care what happened to me myself. So it was like hard to hold both of those things together. So in a lot of ways, I think I just kind of got through because I didn't want to like disappoint other people or hurt other people. And then later in my life, I think that I just realized that you have a responsibility to give something to the world. You don't just get to decide your value based on what you can get from the world. And I think in a lot of ways, like when I was younger, I kind of just felt like, I don't know, I'm not getting a lot out of this. This is kind of a waste. Like this whole thing is kind of a waste. And so why should I like bend myself over trying to like make a lot happen? I think later I started feeling like, oh, I actually have something to give. A lot of times it was, it was the fact that I was working with these young people and I, I would be weirded out that they would like me or like want to hang out with me or they'd come back and say, Oh, you said this thing to me. And that was like meaningful. And like, I appreciate the time you spent. And like, that's cool of you to like go with me to like the DMV to like do this thing. And I would just feel like, Oh, I actually like matter to people. Huh? I should probably do more of that. I mean, I want to help people if I can. So I think that's sort of was like a large part of the transition. And you've written that Trayvon Martin was the reason you started writing again. Yeah. I think probably it's like ties into that last thing I was saying. I think after Trayvon, I felt like all of us needed to be saying things. And probably I was disabused of another notion that we have when we're young, which is a very all or nothing worldview that says like, either I am the savior or I am nothing. Like either the thing I do will change the world or what's the point? I think I outgrew that. And that just happened to coincide with like the time that the Trayvon happened. And I think for me, I came out of that experience with this incredible clarity that I didn't have before that everyone needs to say what they can say. Will it help? I don't know. Will it fix everything? Who cares? This is my responsibility. And so at that point, I started talking to people more honestly about what my experiences were and what I understood. One thing I did learn from theater, from making theater, is that there's this weird calculus where the more the more honest you are about, the more honest and precise you are about your experience, the greater resonance it has with people. It's a little bit counterintuitive because you would think, well, this is just me and other people don't. They have them and I'm so different. And then, but it's almost like inverse. It's like an inversely proportional relationship to the, the more specific and precise and honest you are about a thing that you think or feel or experience, the wider the resonance for some weird reason. And so I think that when I felt like, how do I write about this? Okay, 
like shooting people who are unarmed is bad. Okay, that's I feel like that's not that's been said. We know that. What is a way that I that we can go deeper? And the only thing I could come up with is I just need to write the specifics of my lived experience and let that do what it does to people. And that should be my guiding, kind of like my North Star in terms of being a writer. And the more I did that, the more, in fact, it did resonate with people. What did it look like sort of practically in terms of how it evolved? Well, the, well, I wrote a piece on Facebook one Sunday morning, and then a friend of mine was like, oh, my friend runs this blog, can she put this on her blog? And I was like, sure. And then it was on this blog, and then it, it kind of like happened, like it sort of was like, not viral, it was like went mini viral. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I don't even think I had a Twitter at that point. This is 2014, late 2014. And then a few months later, the person who ran that blog came back to me and asked me to write another thing. And so the thing she wanted me to write about or in response to was that the Michael Brown trial was happening. And so guided by this idea that, like, I don't know what big thing to say. I'm not like this essayist. I only know my thing. So I decided to just write basically every parenting decision that I made on the day of the trial waiting for the trial to be resolved. This is this piece. It's called, like, How to Parent in a How to Parent in a Night Like This. Yeah. yeah. And so that's that's what I wrote. And, like, the thing is, too, becoming a writer when I did, like, late, you know, like, late 30s, early 40s, I try not to bullshit because like there's when I was younger there's a tendency to just bullshit I mean you're doing a little bit of like performance you're doing a little bit of ball juggling just on the page so that people can see that you're interesting or that you're cool or that you have such great insight and that's like a normal drive to do that or to make yourself look good or to avoid the things that make you look bad I fortunately got a lot of that out of my system in my life before I ever got to a platform in which my words are going to be in public. And so then in the absence of that, it's just this clarity about what is actually happening and what is the truth as I know it. And what is the emotional truth that underlies the kind of plot truth and having grown up in LA and been around and involved in the industry from the time I was little, I had an agent when I was like 15 and all that. I sort of learned that there's, you know, you could describe a movie in terms of plot, and in terms of subject, and they're not the same thing, that what a movie is about is different than what happens in a movie. And like Star Wars, this stuff happens, but what it's about is it's about hope and fear and the destiny and stuff. And But it's what happens is the ship and then the people get kidnapped or whatever. And so I learned that that was, that I had to keep track of what is the right plot to convey what it's about. And this thing about a person trying to make decisions in the world that is so complicated for them and where there's such high stakes in such a simple thing, that felt like the most resonant thing. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I wrote, was like what it's like to make high stakes decisions that are very mundane. From just uh, just like retracing the history, when I was going back through your pieces, it seemed like that piece got picked up by other places or it was on courts or something. Yeah, what happened was it was on that blog and then courts and Huffington Post both simultaneously asked to repost it. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know anything about that. And so the woman who ran the blog was like, sure, I guess. And then it ran on both. Um, and But actually, ironically, most of the vi virality of it came from the original blog because uh. that blog just so happens to have been like this weird Hollywood yoga mom blog. Like it was like... You know, like this woman was like a yoga kind of person. Like she's a writer. She's a really good writer. But the blog was followed by like a lot of like kind of like 
Hollywood, you know, and so I think Cindy Crawford retweeted it from that. <laughs> and that was when all of a sudden, I think at that point I had like 27 Twitter followers. And then that, and I just remember, I forgot about the piece. I forgot that it was even running. And then like three days later, I was like, oh, I wonder what's happening with that piece. <laughs> I looked on Twitter and I had like a thousand notifications. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> and there were like DMs from editor. It was like a whole thing. I can just imagine that when you sat down to write that piece, <laughs> which is a very personal and emotional account of you trying to explain this or shield slash talk to your kids about this. Yeah thing that's happening in the world that's so salient for you and that you did not imagine that like Cindy Crawford was the uh, target. I did not, but that is is what the internet does. It's this bizarre compression chamber where it compresses like some random dad in Oakland with like some like 90s supermodel. (laughs) We get compressed into the same space. (laughs) And were you, did you feel like you were kind of off and running in terms of all right, I'm ready to I'm ready to write more. Yeah, I'm because with this. yeah, because at that point I had left a nonprofit after 15 years and I was working for a startup, and I really liked it and uh, it was great. And also I was having a really hard time motivating. I just had such a hard time motivating. And, and then when when it was time to write something, I would just go into this zone and easily put the kids to bed at like nine and then write until five a.m. and it would feel like no time had passed. And so I was like, I think this might be my thing. Um, and so when things started showing up as offers to write, I, I took them. The first person to reach out was Jessica Hopper at Pitchfork. And she is so great. She's so great in so many ways. But one of the things that makes her great is that she's always looking for different kinds of voices. And she immediately was like, hey, I don't know if you've ever written about music, but so on and so forth. Like, let's go. And I was like, I don't know that I have, but let's give it a shot. So I started writing. I wrote a few kind of essays for her. And then the she asked if I'd be willing to review the Kendrick Lamar album. This is when To Pimp a Butterfly came out. And I was like, sure, let me know. And she's like, we don't know when it's going to come out. Because it was like one of these like surprise drop kind of deals. Like rumors had been swirling for a few weeks that it was coming, but no one knew when it was. And then one day I just woke up and she was like, it came out at like 3 a.m. And I just didn't go to work that day. I just called in sick. At the startup. At the startup. And then I, I just listened to it and wrote the piece while I listened to it. And then I filed it probably like three hours after it dropped because it just happened that I could do that. And I think because it that piece ended up doing really well too, she said it was maybe up to that point, like the, the did the highest numbers of anything on there. Wow. And so- Pitchfork um, was a big site then. Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons why that piece resonated. And I think part of it is because I took a lot of, I took shots at other reviewers, which- I mean, as we all know, as Jay-Z taught us all, <laughs> the quickest way to ascend is to... But um, but I, you know, like, just had a lot of problems with the way that music was reviewed, uh, especially hip-hop. And so I wrote those problems out because I felt like I couldn't write an honest review until I had worked through my own stuff. And so I wrote a lot about that in the piece. And then that became, like, a framework. Okay, so let's not do any of this shit that hip-hop writers often do now let's look at this work through this lens and that piece did really well and then i think that's when the new yorker i think i got my first dm from them after that piece like once the new yorker came i was like wait i think this might be a real thing that i can do for a living and in terms of your your sort of writing talent and writing style when you first started out i mean i read this pitchfork pieces i don't know that i had read them at the time but like you wrote an essay on Thelonious monk yeah, as among that's one of my favorite. But that piece, I mean, I love Thelonious Monk. If you assign me a piece to write about Thelonious Monk, I'd probably say no. Like right. I cannot. And you wrote about it with a fluency of 
description. Right. It's not you starting like this writing career at you right. know in your mid thirties. It's not the same as someone starting out in their twenties no. and you hand them this assignment. No. So it made me wonder what you had been doing in those right. intervening years right. that when the opportunity came, you just sat down and you said, I know how to describe a Thelonious Monk uh, solo in a way that right. that's not natural to a lot of people. Right. Well, I think, uh, thank you for that. Like, I think a lot of what happened was a facility with language became a part of growing up for me because I had, I moved around so much. And so moving from place to place to place you have to learn the linguistics of each place you go to. What do people say? What do they really mean when they say this? What does this mean versus that? And language is so complex. And I, I happen to love that complexity for me personally. And that's combined with just the kind of person I am. Now, I could have been some dude that just moved around a lot, but just was a man of few words. Like that could have been, I could have been that guy. Yeah, the so, shy guy. Yeah, yeah sure. so whatever, whatever um, like DNA I had combined with my circumstances allowed me to like obsess with language. I did read a lot when I was a kid. Uh, I did, I, I was really obsessed with music. I discovered Thelonious Monk in particular in my senior year of high school, maybe. And like I would get a bunch of CDs. I'd read the liner notes. I would listen. I would read, you know, like, various books and I remember reading I got the first musician I really got obsessed with after the Michael Jackson Prince phase which was kind of like a default thing of being a a child was Jimi Hendrix and I got so into Jimi Hendrix in high school that I read everything that everyone wrote about him I read books about him I read like spin magazine things I would you know I would go to the library and look up stuff and so I just in the process of like being obsessive compulsive I just took in a lot of music writer language (laughs) so I think he was just there and I played music a lot too and I was really obsessed with theory and harmony when I was in college in fact one of the like like I was not a huge shoplifter, but one of the like prominent things I shoplifted was a book on harmony and theory from like the NYU bookstore that my roommate and I decided to like take ourselves through for a semester. So we would actually like do the exercises in the workbook so we could teach ourselves theory and harmony. Probably among the least shoplifted <laughs> uh, books. That's why I got away with it. Does <laughs> anyone see that one copy we that. had of? <laughs> He didn't just shoplift a theory book, did he? I just saw him walk out. There's no way he it did. It could be. He, okay. must have, he walked in with he it. He must have walked in with it because that doesn't make any sense. So I think that all, it's like one of the things about being old and getting older, which I love, and I even felt like this was going to happen when I was younger, is that so much of my life experience coalesces into things that are useful. There's this feeling that all the experiences I've had if you keep your eyes open, you can find how those experiences can be beneficial to other people. No matter how, even if they sucked for you, you can find a way that they coalesce. And so, yes, like all those years that I was obsessing over this, that, or the other thing, all the weird stuff that I would do, all the weird things that happened to me, all the places I found myself in that I didn't want to be in, but were interesting. This is all part of what makes me the writer that I am today. So practically, when did you quit the startup? Was it some places you're described as a startup founder? Was it your startup? The second one I worked at, I did find I, oh, I was okay. a founder of a startup. Oh, okay, yeah. and so um, then when Jessica left Pitchfork, that's when the whole MTV thing happened. When MTV like was gonna like we're gonna do this whole thing, we're gonna redo the newsroom, and so Jessica had hinted to me she was like I can't say anything now, but by the end of the year, this was maybe August, she was like something's gonna be happening. I want you to just stay available, and I was like okay, what is it? And then she kind of like came back in December and was like okay, so here's the deal. 
MTV's doing this new thing. I'm doing this. We're bringing on all these people. And that's where, you know, we're taking kind of like the Grantland leftovers and we're like bringing all these people. And Hanif is going to be there and Doreen St. Felix. And we want you to come and like shrill, like all these people. And so they put together this like dream team, really. And I was just like, what the fuck? Like I had, I mean, I just could not believe that I was like among these writers, Charles Aaron and like Alex Papadamus and like, it was just crazy. It was, and it was murderous row. It was a murderous row, yeah. yeah. And I feel like really, really blessed to have been a part of that. And so the money they offered me for that was not really enough to like do it only. But I remember just talking to one of my close friends and she was like, you know you're going to do whatever it takes because this is what you love. And this is and like it's happening. So like just take the money. Like even if even if you don't get enough, just fucking make it work. Hmm. And I was like, you're right. And so I did. And it did work out in a weird roundabout way. And so for a year, I was at the MTV thing and just having to write a piece a week, uh, more or less, which I didn't always hit. But, you know, that was the idea. I think that helped a lot um, just with me figuring out all the different ways to approach a topic, kind of more the technique, the ins and outs. And again, just having been in several industries, you learn the lay of the land of various spaces. Like you learn how to be a professional. You learn what is the jargon? What are the methodologies here? What's the framework that we're all operating off? of what is our you know and part of what i always try to do is make connections between things that don't seem to be connected and so you know i was like i could see some similarities in the content space from the nonprofit space and mm. then i could see some similarities from the nonprofit space to lessons i learned in the tech space it's just sort of like i just look for the way things overlap even if they're not exactly the same there's one piece in particular from that era that i wanted to talk about which mm. was the cowboy poets mm-hmm. um conference mm-hmm. festival that was, um, yeah that was actually more kind of towards the end I think I might have actually been off contract at that point oh really yeah. was that I'm always interested when I read I mean that that story there's different ways to do that kind of subculture yeah. story yeah. and I'm wondering if you went into it with the idea of how ultimately it was going to be framed or you just went no because you love country music and you thought no i don't i almost never know how a thing is going to be framed until i talk to the people that are there like i try to let the subjects be the guy frame the piece for me because it's based on what they say or if it's not about interviewing people it's based on what happens i had a sense of the potential tone that you had cowboys and poets and you were going to be in the mountains. So I was like, okay, I bet you there'll be some kind of um, sort of lonesome, winsome. You could do a lot of space you could describe. Like I had some ideas of some writerly things that could possibly make sense given that combination of subjects and influences, but I didn't know what was going to happen. I think whenever you go into a like a subculture thing, the number one question is, why do people do this? Mm -hmm. You know, why do people dress up like pickles or whatever the weird thing is that people do? And you want to genuinely understand it. You don't want to go into it and say, these people are fucking weird and here's the weird shit they do. Aren't they weird? You want to leave having gained a clarity on why this makes sense for people, why this is necessary. I have the belief that if people do something, it's because they find it necessary. And so if I don't find it necessary, it doesn't mean what they're doing is stupid. It means I don't yet understand what they understand. And so my job is to go in and find what they understand. And probably the best way I can do that, and maybe the only way I know how to do that, is to find where I connect to the thing that they want where do we want the same things? So what do people who travel from all over, ranchers from all over the country who travel to this place in Nevada want from this experience? 
and where do I want that? How do I understand that wanting in my own story? That's the way that I tried to approach it. But then also, you just want to write what happens. Yeah. Because sometimes you don't know all that. You just write what happens, and then you don't know until the end, oh, wait, this is what it all means. Yeah. And so what happened is, it was super awkward for me to be there. I felt like hella out of place. Like, all that stuff happened. So I was like, I got to write that, because that's what happened. Uh, and then, as I was writing it, things started to come together. Like, oh, there's a lot. I can now see how it all works. But the way I write, I get really nervous when I write, because I will have like... I'm in this right now with the New York Times piece that I'm writing. I'm like, here's an, like some ma- amazing thoughts. Here's some beautiful poetry about an idea. Over here, over here. They're so disparate, and I don't know how they're all going to tie together. And that period when I have all this stuff and I don't know how they're going to tie together is terrifying to me. I'm like, this is a mess on a page. It's just like eggs, scram- just like smashed, and they're not together. And then it's not until I find the thing that will bring them together, whether it's a mood, an image, an idea, ideally a thesis, if you're really like clicking on all cylinders. So I think for that piece, I didn't have that for a long time. And I was like, what the hell am I doing? But I just kept writing because there was a deadline. Uh, And then somewhere (laughs) along the end, I was like, oh, wait, this I think this is about longing. And this is about feeling like you're alone but actually being with someone, but then the loneliness can never really go away. Like, this is what this is about. But there's also, there's this passage in there, which I I wrote down, which is like, connects it to racial dynamics in America and connects it back to yourself. Mm. Um, here, I'm just going to read it. Yeah, yeah read it, because I forgot um, what I wrote. Deep in my consciousness, I still don't know that the definition of this country safely includes me. Mm. It's as though the barriers to American identity are impenetrable, but also nearly invisible. Mm. Thinly wired like electric fences that keep cattle on the range, the herd encircled and roped by a scant team of bold and wiry white men who are finding their freedom, finding their gods. Mm. And that was just kind of like... Oh, I wrote that. That's pretty good. T- tucked in there, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think also part of my job is to be not cynical, but maybe critical of the thing that everyone else is really feeling at any given moment. So when I went there, there were these ranchers that were, I was also struck, I guess this is what it is. I was struck by the juxtaposition between the drive for freedom that these ranchers talked about and the way they talked about it. And that's what this was about. It was about connecting with the earth and being at one with freedom. And it's like, and then that that freedom comes at a cost it comes at the cost of native americans it comes at it like it you can't one is not separate from the other so you have this vision where you're trying to find the connection but then you have this complicating factor that's sort of what makes the b story and to use go back to screenwriting language mm-hmm. is that there's this complicating factor that makes the a story not as simple as you might think it might be and so the a story is like these ranchers are looking for freedom in the world and then they find it and isn't it beautiful how they find it and i understand that look for freedom even though i'm not a rancher here's my relationship to freedom but then the complicating factor is but the reality is that freedom comes at a cost it comes at the expense of someone else's freedom period you don't have to resolve that you just have to say that Mm -hmm. and then people can do whatever they want with it well, this kind of connects to, I mean, I think the piece that I first, I can really remember that I knew was your piece and I, it like stuck with me was the green book piece that you did mm, for the toast. Yeah, yeah. And I want to ask just a more like a practical, like career oriented question about this, which is, I think there's different ways to approach freelancing and mm. making your way in, in this very trying and difficult media <laughs> landscape. Um, but 
an interesting thing to me is always when someone, f- it feels like the work, it all connects together, mm. even though it's all over the place. And mm-hmm. I'm interested to what extent you felt like you were just kind of like, I'm, I need to make a living here. Mm. I have kids. Like, mm. give me assignments. I'll take assignments. Mm-hmm. I'll do whatever. Mm-hmm. Versus you kind of thought as you were moving further and further into it, maybe during MTV, post MTV with mm. The New Yorker, I have a project that I'm undertaking mm. and I want all these things to connect to it. I'd like to give myself credit for having this kind of like uber strategic vision, but I don't think that that's what happened. I think that if you, I mean, I have this theory that if you tell the truth, everything's connected and you predict the future, right? Like, so like, I think that there is a certain amount of truth telling that makes everything work because the truth doesn't change. So it does make sense that there is a link between the cowboy piece and the green book toast piece because they are the same kind of, exploration of the same kinds of things mm-hmm. that piece we knew the topic was going to be the green book and it, it was sort of like nicole who's just has a viewpoint where she lets writers do what they do she was like just green book and go just do something like that's it that's the <laughs> yeah, idea go figure it out and it if you need help paralyzing if you need help come back to me but if not and so i you know i sat with it for a while i didn't know what i was going to do and i know content enough to know that i need Again, to go back to filmmaking stuff, which now I realize a lot of my influence comes from, you have to have a MacGuffin, right? You have to have the thing that the person is trying to solve, like the case that they're on. And you can acknowledge that to greater or lesser extents, but it's a driving question is another way of looking at it. More playwrights refer to it as that. And I was looking for that. And when I touched the book and interacted with it, I thought, that's fascinating that there's these addresses. What has happened to these people? Should we say what the Green Book is? I, I feel like we should assume that people know what the Green Book is. But I would hope that people know what it is. But point, if but... not, the Green Book was essentially a guidebook for black travelers from the, it existed from like late 30s to the mid 60s. That was basically started by one guy, this postman out of New Jersey, who basically was like, okay, if you're a black family, you need to travel from, let's say, Knoxville to, you know, somewhere in Arkansas to visit grandma. Where can you stay safely? Where can you eat? Where can you get gas? Where can you spend the night? Without knowing that, you're not safe on the road. And so let's have a crowdsourced thing where people say, hey, come eat at my place. Come stay at my... It's free advertising for them. People need it because they need to travel. And that was called the Green Book. It was like the guide to how to travel while black. So different cities, you would just open up. It was alphabetized by cities. So you might, you know, just Oakland, California, you'd open it up. And there'd be like seven houses just in Oakland that you could just stay at. Here's the number. You know, it's like Cherry 5731 or whatever. And then it's like, here's Mrs., you know, whatever. And like, you just call this person up and then you just say, hey, we're going to be in town. Can you board us? And so I was fascinated by that. And I went to see a copy of the Green Book. This many in in the Library of Congress, but there's one at Stanford. I drove down to see that. And I was fascinated by these addresses. And I was like, well, what happened to these people? And what happened to these houses? So there's your question. There's there's your question. And so I decided I was going to pick an address and find out what happened to the house and what happened to the people that live there and what is the story of that family. And I, again, it's the specific means the general, if you can tell it honestly, if I could tell the idea was that if I could tell a specific story of whatever the fuck happened to that family, then you would tell a larger story about what is happening in this country and what has happened. That was the idea. The story also has, I, I believe, hands down, the most elegant description of a freeway underpass that uh, <laughs> that I've ever read. I put it up against any description of a freeway underpass <laughs> in the world. No, it's really, truly, really beautiful. Passage. I can't wait to collect the uh, the, the award at the freeway underpass uh, <laughs> gala. I'm not sure the freeway people would like it. <laughs> um, so, 
you've done pieces like that or the MTV stuff where you have, I think, sort of huge freedom, it feels like, yeah. to kind of explore. Yeah. And then, you know, you've also done real, like, celebrity profile mm-hmm. kind of things mm-hmm. like Mahershala Ali mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Sam Jackson mm-hmm. for like GQ and Esquire. Mm-hmm. And how difficult did you find sort of adapting at that point to those kind of constraints that exist around those things? Um, not as hard as you would think. I feel very lucky that the New Yorker entered my life early on because at the New Yorker, I felt like I learned how to structure a piece by the way they edited me there. And... Especially I did a long form on Steph Curry, mm-hmm. which I never got access to Steph Curry. It was like Steph Curry has a cold kind of thing. They just yeah. It was the end of the season and the Warriors were having none of it. They did not want anyone involving themselves. Yeah, that's a new piece where he's, they say he's not doing individual interviews anymore. Yeah, he's anymore. not. We're not. You know, I would see him like the practice. I'd be like, Steph. He'd be like, hey, what's up, man? Just keep, keep walking. So like I never, you know, like, but I think the editing for that piece taught me how this stuff works. And I think, again, being older, knowing that there's a system here that I don't yet understand. So the quicker I learn it, the better that's going to be for me and for my rent getting paid. And so I think my attitude with that was very like, okay, let me learn what the system is here. And then I feel like once you learn it, then you can kind of improvise with it. And so I think the New Yorker coming in early on, like 2015, I did that piece, maybe early 2016, that helped. This stuff for the New York Times also helped because, you know, they were like, look, this is right now what you have is really strong, but structurally it's not, this is what we need. And so just having to go back and like learn how to do that helped. By the time I got to GQ, they also, you know, GQ has a lot of edit. I mean, they take their stuff seriously. Their top edit was like a whole production. You'd get a whole thing together. Then top edit would come and be like, nope, we're beginning here. We're beginning in the restaurant. Okay, we're beginning in the restaurant. Never mind, we're not beginning in the restaurant. We're beginning in the storage facility. And that, just watching all those changes happen taught me a lot. But I think also the thing is, I write in a way that pushes the envelope on what these styles can be. Mm-hmm. I think I understand in a celebrity profile, you need to do a number of things. Mm-hmm. You need to establish a scene. You need to talk about your relationship to the celebrity and how amazing they are and how weird they are, how off-putting they are. You need to take the reader through why are we talking about this person at this moment. You need to give the true fan to that person some stuff to fan out over. Uh, and then you need to, what I feel like you need to do, and I don't know that people always do this, is that you need to talk about their work and what it means about where we are right now. And I think that's the thing that I always feel like I have to get to, is I have to talk about the fact that this person is famous and is getting work and is on the cover of this magazine. What does that say about where we are and what we're doing? What is the meaning of that? And I think sometimes my quickest way into that is there's a personal story in there. And that's what happened with the Mahershala piece. I often think of a profile as literally like a painting. I've used this metaphor a lot. You're doing a painting of a person and you have to light them from different directions. This is another thing I learned in theater. I remember my favorite book that I read in theater was Lighting for Directors. I forgot the name of the author, but uh, it was like a way to understand how important lighting is in theater. And so if you have a subject on stage, the way you light them, that in and of itself tells a story. You have a little bit of like light, you know, maybe like your 3% light from this angle, then four from this angle, then from the bottom, you give them the extra shadows, then from the top. And so when you're doing a profile of a person, you're also doing that. You're painting a portrait of them and everything else that you tell is a source of light. 
But that source of light has to point back to the person. So if you describe what the cafe is like, you're not describing it to take up space. You're describing it because that sets this person in a certain context. And if you're describing what they were wearing, that contextualizes them. And if you're describing some aspect of how you reacted to them, you're not doing that to talk about you, but to shed light on something about them. It's always to shed light on the person from different directions so you get a full picture of them. And so in the in the Mahershala piece, this thing, I was just so struck by all of our biographical overlaps. He and I, we went to the same school. We were sort of less the same age. We had the same, more or less the same experiences in theater. And I felt like that was amazing. But then more to the point, his story reminded me of my father's story. And it just happened that I called my dad when I was waiting for him to show up at the bowling alley. My dad said this thing. And I was like, I think this story does the most of shedding light on what Mahershala means, to tell the story of my dad, who's like another version of Mahershala, but with completely different experience. But that's the goal, is you're always trying to find a way to shed light on, on the main subject. That makes me think about, I mean, in that piece, I feel like there's a literal, it sort of starts with like, I do, literal what I, light is. <laughs> I was like, is this too much? But that's another thing you learn from Shakespeare and from playwrights is that you can create visual imagery and you can draw that visual imagery through a piece and you can refer to it. You know, you, you choose your images. Every time you describe something, you're now entering an image into the lexicon of the reader of the piece. And so that has to be done conscientiously. Well, for me, it connected with, maybe because I'm reading a bunch of stuff of yours back mm. again and, and at the same time, but you did a profile, a story f about this Michigan State basketball star who's- Oh, Miles Bridges. Yeah, yeah, for ESPN. That's great. I love that guy. And it ends with a kind of yeah. light, yes, like a literal light yeah. reference. Yeah, it does. In the room. It does. Yeah. And I think, again, like we're now we're just going through like kind of iconography. Right. And this is maybe something I learned from like being so obsessed with filmmaking and then reading all these filmmaking books and looking, you know, it's like we know what beam of light means. And so that's a thing that you can turn to when you're trying to describe a certain kind of experience. And you have to be careful with it. You can't just like slap it on everything. But it's it is a thing you can go to. And I I just love describing it. I mean, light to me. I was just telling someone this yesterday. I was in Chicago a couple of years ago and I had gone for a funeral and then I had to go back to the airport, but I kind of lied to the people and told them my flight was two hours earlier than it was just so I could go to the art museum. So I go into the art museum. I like park. I have this rental car. It takes forever to park. I get there and I walk in and I can only see one section. And so I just have to live with the section that I can see. And it just so happens that the section I can see is this section that has Nighthawks at the diner, the Hopper painting which has been, you know, reproduced in like mm -hmm. a billion, whatever, like Hollywood posters, whatever. That painting, the light is insane in that painting. It's literally a work of art. It's huge, but the use of light actually made me cry because there's something so fascinating about people being able to capture light. Light is beyond us. We have harnessed it and made it, but it's still beyond us. And so every time a person has an interaction with light, it feels that a person is perhaps just touching the hem of the divine. And if you can like figure out how to write that in a way that feels authentic and real, that acknowledges, look, I'm going somewhere, guys. Like I'm going to like a little bit of a weird place, but I think we've earned it. Then I think that I, I, I like to do that whenever I can. So 
I want to talk about podcasting because you've had two podcasts that I've listened to extensively, um, which are different. One's mm. the parenting podcast mm-hmm. on Slate, mm-hmm. which is it's it's a weird situation. Like I know your kids' mm. names, <laughs> yeah, like Ezra and Georgia. Yeah. How are they? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I also know from your other podcast, Close to They Appear, you know a lot. As I said about how you grew up, mm. and you know that is an exploration of your biography and those. Did you come naturally to the idea of I'm okay writing about my life to strangers? I'm okay with strangers knowing these parts of my life? Did it ever feel like it got away from you or you were uncomfortable with it? It never super felt like it got away from me. Definitely in Closer, there was a push to get more. And I was like a little bit of a push-pull. I was like, really? And they were like, no, we need more. I was like, I don't think so. From producers. Yeah, just from like general. But I also recognized, you know, we, when we started that show, we knew that we wanted to write something about the way people were changing individually after the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. That that was the idea that I had. It wasn't just like, here's some stuff in the news, here's some politics. I wanted to talk about the internal shifts that were happening in people after the election. Things that they used to put up with that they weren't fucking putting up with anymore. Things that they didn't used to put up with that now they were putting up with. I don't know. I just wanted to find these stories. So as a team, we went through all these possible stories we could think of. We even had someone in our staff who had a story that was really intense. It was very personal. And... We even wrote up like a whole series arc for that story. This happens in an episode three, this happens. And she was like, you know what? No, never mind. And I was like, God damn. <laughs> and then at some point, I just in a random off shoot thing said, you know, God, I haven't gone back to this town I grew up in. And I was like raised by this white woman who was like my aunt for a few years. And I haven't seen her. And it would be really intense if I saw her. And then I just, I saw this look over, come over my producer's face. And I was like, fuck, I shouldn't have said that. Because I could just see her doing the math. And I was like, God damn it. And I even said, well, maybe after this, we'll do a podcast there, like trying to like slough it <laughs> off. But then they came back to me like a week later and they were like, we really think that this is the story. And I was, and they were like, only if you want to do it, like only if you want to do it. And I was like, I had to sit and think about it. And the problem was as a writer, I was like, God damn it. That is the story, isn't it? Like, that's really the story. Incredible story. The fact that it was mine didn't have anything to do with it. I was like, that just is the story. It's right. It's fascinating. It's interesting. Fuck it, let's do it. And throughout that process, I was constantly like, are you more? You want more from me? But every time I felt like, but the story does need this. And so my primary allegiance was to the story, Mm. not necessarily to to myself, which I don't know if that I would recommend that as a thing, but that's how I felt. With the parenting podcast, the thing about that podcast that's I think people don't really know, and I think we can all say this now because I don't think any of the original people are on the air. Not original, but the group that, that was me, Gabe, and Rebecca. There's a lot of parenting stuff that we didn't talk about in that show. Mm-hmm. And so we did tell a lot about what happened, and we weren't by any means dishonest, but we definitely talked about stuff offline that we're like, we're not talking about this on the show. So there's more to it because parenting is so fucking intense, and the experience of being with kids and being in a family is like so wild. You just There's a lot of stuff you don't talk about on air. So I think I've always felt like I have more or less control over what of myself that I reveal. And I don't know if I'll later regret stuff, but I've never done anything so far that I've like truly regretted going out there with. And what did, I mean, I, I finishing closer than they appear, I was kind of like, I don't know what the, the 
if it was meant to be more than one season or if it was meant to always only be one season or um but I wanted another we uh, <laughs> I yes. wanted another season this was a, this was like a one of those just things where business you know just yeah. like, just like stuff happens yeah. people don't come back to their position you know it's just like whatever just weird politics of shit but I'm wondering what um what kind of opened up after that I mean just as a listener to it both with people from the town like you there's this one incredible episode that we were mm-hmm. talking about a little bit outside which mm-hmm. is with this guy sham race yeah who's a real character yeah like should have his own show or something i don't know he's really <laughs> interesting to listen to um that you reconnect with and then yeah. of course the woman who raised you as well yeah what was the aftermath for you of that well the aftermath is that i mean the woman who who raised me we have remained in touch and have tried to put together some semblance of like a parent-child relationship, which is some version of what we had. And that involves like, you know, similarly, the interview that I did with her in the show was the second interview that we did. Mm -hmm. I did a long talk with her the day before and she was like, I don't want any of this on the radio. And so we didn't put any of it in the radio, but we did talk for like four hours and a lot of stuff got dealt with, handled, honest things were talked about. And so what we ended up with in the show was about her biography was not about our personal stuff to a great extent we have since connected around a lot of those things it's hard to put a relationship back in your life that you lived without for 20 years that's not an easy thing to do so i think sometimes we we both stumble with that long periods of time will go without us talking but i think that's what has come out of that as far as sham racing mckeesport i'm working on another book uh that is a memoir and part of it is that i'm doing magazine style profiles of people who are in my life currently in your life or have have been historically in my life and so i'm going to go back and find some other people not sham race in this case but some people that he and i were talking about offline that had a huge impact on me growing up and i'm going to see if i could find these girls who are twins and see if i can do a magazine style profile of them for a book that has to do with recovering from childhood trauma and so part of the motivation is to go do magazine style profiles of people who were present in my life at sites of trauma (laughs) and learn about their own stories and what they who have they become you know what are they facing one thing i really learned from closer is that when in doubt just fucking go interview someone and tell their story like, just like we did with Sham Race. I mean, okay, we're doing this thing about Trump and the election and racism in America and all this stuff. Can this country survive? Okay, but then we just go and talk to this guy who, he's not even, he really doesn't actually care about any of this shit. He's just trying to do his thing. And just by telling his story, we end up shining light on all these larger things. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think that show proved that to me, that you can really just go tell someone's story. And you can just go tell a lot of people's stories and then later figure out how they all go together. It's a little bit of a Studs Terkel approach. And like, that's another big influence of mine in high school and college because uh, the first show that I worked tech on was Studs Terkel's Working, which, you know, is like a musical based on. And I just was like, wait, so th- let me get this straight. This guy just interviewed all these people about their jobs? That is dope as hell. And so I, I think that that was, again, like a thing where I'm just like, just go talk to people and get them to tell you what they want you to know. And part of the trick is finding what is it that a person really wants to be heard? What is the thing that they feel like, God damn it, I wish more people could hear this. You're trying to give them that platform to say what it is that they think more people can hear. And that's when you get like, I think kind of an engaging piece, especially if you like use the things they show you to build around. 
this connects up to another version of that, which is I don't want to let, let you go without asking you about the Andre Iguodala book. Because mm-hmm. um, I feel like people approach this co-writing mm-hmm. kind of situation in different ways. Mm-hmm. And some people are willing to talk about it or not talk about it. But, you know, in certain cases, people are just like, that's a job. I got a job mm-hmm. helping someone write a book and whatever. We got it out. It's their book. It's yeah. fine. But I saw that you, you like did events with him. Yeah. So I wondered, first of all, why you decided to do it. And then kind of like how you treated it versus your your other work. Yeah. Well, the Andre book was amazing because I got a phone call from them or an email or whatever it was after my second piece for MTV ran. Mm. This Maybe the third, second or third piece I wrote for MTV. And had you done the Steph Curry thing already for The New Yorker? Had you already covered the mm, Warriors at all? I think I might have done the Steph Curry piece. I don't know. I wondered if it but came they out of that somehow. They didn't, no, it didn't come out of that. I don't think they had actually even read that. What I was told when his team reached out to me was they had read this article that I had written in the MTV about this rapper, Bankroll Fresh, who was murdered outside of a studio. And it was a very odd thing because I had never, I had heard of him, but not really like, I didn't like listen to him. I didn't really know anything about him. So when in the MTV Slack, someone was like, hey, breaking news, uh, Bankroll Fresh murdered. Does anyone want to like do this? Kind of just threw it out in the Slack to see if any of the writers jumped on it. About an hour passed and no one no one responded. And I was like, well, I'll do it. But I knew good and well that I didn't, I'd have to like start from like, who is this guy? What do I know? So I ended up writing this piece where I just kind of like meditated on what the loss of his life truly means and where does he come from and what is he about? And what does this loss mean within the context of all other losses of life? And I guess Andre's people, a guy on Andre's team read that piece and was like, that's the guy who I think can like find words to say the stuff that Andre is trying to say. So when I got that phone call from them being like, Hey, do you want to work on this book? I was like, okay. Like I had never, I mean, you know, you know what I mean? I'd written like maybe 10 pieces total on the planet. Oh, wow. If that. So I was like, yeah, okay. I, you know, so that's basically how I ended up doing that. So then we started, so then I said, okay, well let's do the proposal first. So then I went and sat down with Andre talked with him it was like a whole thing you have to meet him and then like they were like he likes you because he sort of opened up and you know and then we sat down and then we did the the proposal interviews and we did probably four hours of interviews and at that point i'm just doing what i do i'm just like asking people questions about their lives yeah like you were just talking about and being like what does that mean say more about that that's interesting wow that's fascinating well don't you ever feel like this well how come you didn't do that you know just getting them to say whatever it is that they fucking want to say and I just recorded all of it. And then we put together a proposal based on that. And then when we did that deal, it was like we were off and running. Hmm. The way I approached it with him was we sat down for a series of interviews. We tried to meet as much as we could every week-ish, although that was really hard to pull that off with everyone's schedule. And um, we would meet for like an hour to an hour and a half. And I would just, you know, it took a while for me to know how to do this because I had never done this before. I think the first, like, two chapters I wrote, I think were just way more biographical. And then I went back and like, was like, okay, memoir, what really is that? And then I kind of like got started obsessing over Mary Carr and like, I read the art of memoir and I started listening to podcasts and I was like, oh, it comes from memory. I get it. It's like memory. You're trying to like, this isn't about then we played this team, then this happened. It's about what do you remember? What mm-hmm. are the feelings? What? And so then I, we went back and kind of started the story from the beginning. It's like, what happened? What do you remember feeling like? You know, that was the series of questions. And I think once he got the, oh, that's how you do this, because he was learning how to do it too. Then he was with it, you know, and then it would kind of, it flowed pretty smooth from there. 
um, I tried to take as much of what I recorded from him and just transcribe it into text as I could mm-hmm. get away with. Yeah. And then there were other portions that I wrote through, you know, with a heavier hand as like a writer, but I felt like my job was more as almost more like an editor organizer and finding what are the emotional themes and the through lines. And I would kind of pitch them to him as we went. I'd sort of say, okay, I went back and I kind of worked through the thematic arc of this thing. And what I think your story is really about is this, this and that. And just, again, going back to, like, Hollywood stuff, hero's journey stuff, stuff that I, like, learned when I was a teenager is that, okay, here's this person trying to do this thing. What stands in the way? And for him, he's trying to find this oneness with, like, the practice of his craft because he really loves that feeling. And so the rest of his life as a professional athlete is about things intervening in that feeling, right? He has this youth where he has these moments of oneness where he's like, God damn it. I'm at one. This is it. Like I play ball. That's what I do. This is so great. And then what is everything that happens? Now you've got sneaker deals and agents and coaches and money and injuries and racism and like and cops and the and like all the stuff. Twitter. So this stuff happens to him and then depression and the fans. And so it's like he has this place that is like his one. Maybe to go back to a music metaphor that like in music you have like the one chord which is the home chord and then you the whole music is just journeys closer and farther away from the one chord. You know. At the five chord, you want to resolve to the one. At the two, you want to go to the five. It's sort of like there's these musical ideas that drive the way we go through journeys. For Andre, the one chord was this feelings that he would have sometimes in high school when he was just playing ball Hmm. and he just felt it one. And then what I saw in the way he described his life is that so many things were interventions in that. And they took him on this journey away from that and that he was trying to make decisions to get him back to that. Even some of the shit he said in the press that would freak people out. He was just trying to get people off his shit so he could get back to one. And like then that was going to do a whole thing. And he was just trying to navigate that. And I was like, well, there's your story. There's your, you know. And so we begin at one and then we go on the fucking journey. And then how do we get back to one at the end if we do? So what's your one chord? God damn it. Um... I'm at a place right now where I don't fully know anymore. Um, God, is that what it's like when someone asks you a question? Like, I need to stop doing that to people. That's terrible. Um, <laughs> I uh, I like being a writer. I don't like writing. Writing is really hard, and it's really just like it's just fucking uncomfortable. Just sitting, you know, and there are sometimes you get like a zone, you know, where you're just like moving paragraphs and everything's flowing, but it's not that a lot. A lot of times it's like you write nine sentences and you're like, this is the dumbest shit I ever read. And then you go on Twitter for an hour and a half and then you're like, why am I like this? And that's what a lot of my experience of being a writer is like. It's just so, my experience yeah, as well. I think it's a universal thing. And so I don't love the act of writing. I do love having the hold of an idea that I get to sit with and let it germinate, gestate inside me while I'm doing my life, being with my kids, connecting with them, being with my partner, connecting with her, like cleaning my house, dealing with my plants, going to the gym, when I'm living in the world, interacting with people, And I have this idea that I'm thinking about for a piece and I'm starting to see how it all comes together. That's probably my one. That's where I feel like I love this. And I don't get to, you mean, that's the thing that makes life a journey is that you don't get to stay at your place. You have to leave home 
It's just, you have to. So a lot of days I feel wonky and confused and just like ugly inside and dry and crusty and nothing makes sense. But I've learned over the years that you just have to walk through those days. I mean, they don't, you don't get to avoid them. You just get to see how they change because everything does change. So when you feel good, that will change. When you feel bad, this also will change. But I think that's my one. I love having an idea and working it and finding how they all link. Well, Carvel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Awesome. I'm so glad that I got a chance to really enjoyed it. The show was great. That's this week's show. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thank you to Carvel Wallace for coming in while he was in New York. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, and to our editor, as always, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Marina Clementi, and our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. We will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.